Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Oak Shape Podcast with me, Dan the Fitness Man Staten. This podcast is dedicated to blue-collar, hard-working public land elk hunters. We preach hard work, delayed gratification, discipline, and staying accountable to yourself. We value faith, family, fitness, fiscal discipline, and of course, public land elk hunting. So come along as we try to educate, motivate, and inspire you to become the best possible version of yourself. Our podcast is brought to you by Wilderness Athlete, performance you deserve. Fuel your body with the best. Use our discount code ELKSHAPE30 and save 30% off your first purchase. We are also brought to you by NUMA Outdoors. Geared for the outdoors, made with bow hunters in mind, built to over-deliver, and most importantly, designed to outperform. Check out NUMAOutdoors.com and be sure to use the discount code ELKSHAPE20 to save 20% off your purchase. Matthews Archery elevating the archery experience take a test drive with the matthews v331 or 27 at a local dealer near you vortex optics i've been partnered with vortex since 2010 this company is awesome they're american owned veteran owned they're based in wisconsin their entire team of designers and engineers produce and distribute a complete line of premium sport optics accessories and apparel most of the apparel that i wear while training scouting and hanging out around the house is Vortex Wear. Go ahead and check it out. And if you want to save 20%, enter the discount code ELKSHAPE at checkout and you'll save 20%. New from Vortex in 2021 is their tripods. The one I've been using in the backcountry is their Summit Carbon Tube and their Radian Carbon. And it also has a ball leveling head and it's perfect for rock solid shooting. There is a tripod to fit everyone's needs from Vortex now, and it's still covered with their lifetime no-fault transferable VIP warranty. Check it out at VortexOptics.com. Oak Shape Podcast. What's up, Dan the Fitness Man? Sitting down 
new episode. We're going to recap the late season Arizona archery elk hunt. Joining me on this is my good friend, Josh Crawford. He's also the hired hand videographer on this hunt. I've also known him for over a decade and he's a workout partner and just a really good friend, good dude. Josh is super quiet, chill, and one of the nicest, most genuine people I've ever met in uh, this walk of life. So it's an honor to get him on here and put a microphone in his face and make him talk. In the background is a lot of interstate. We're in my truck. We're driving home from the hunt. I wanted to record while it was all fresh in our minds. And so I want you to to sit back and enjoy uh, our Arizona story. And uh, you too should hunt Arizona. I would say save your points for the rut hunt. It's got to be one of the most incredible hunts on planet Earth. And if you can't wait, then start putting in for the late rifle and be picky and go down there and prepare yourself to hunt hard and you'll get a nice bull. Without further ado, this is the Elk Shape Podcast and we're recapping the Arizona late season archery elk hunt. Hey friends, welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast with me, Dan the Fitness Man. What's up? We are in a lovely blue sky 60 degree Arizona driving home after an eight day bender elk hunting. Uh, got my buddy with me. I'll introduce him here in a second. We are um, sponsorships. We have some sponsors that we got to plug. One is hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to yourself. Those are our, my main sponsors. And uh, without further ado, we're going to get into this hunt that we just finished up. Uh, I talked to Josh Crawford sitting next to me in my truck as we drive home in the Elk Mobile unit. Um, I asked him kind of in probably three or four months ago if he wanted to film this hunt and come down. And he said he was pretty interested. And then I failed to mention it to him again until about... mm, 10 days before that it was time to leave. And, uh, I was going to, originally I was going to have him do it, but I thought in the back of my mind that I forgot to like remind him about it. People get busy. And so I had Jake Webb on the line, but he can only go like five or six days. And I just knew that I wanted to put at least a week together. So, uh, Josh came over, helped me work on the gym. And then we did a little workout and I mentioned it and he said, yeah, I'll check it out. And I think 24 hours later, you sent me a text, Josh, and we're like, I'm in. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Talked so to the wife, and she was she gave me the thumbs up, so worked out. Thanks, Mrs. Crawford. Uh, so you met me. I think you walked into my gym. I think we figured it out 2010 or 2011. Yeah. And you were like, yo, um, I've been doing CrossFit for years, which even in 2011 was pretty early. Uh, and, uh, we just moved here not too long ago from Vancouver or no Portland. Yeah, it was Vancouver. Vancouver. We want to check out your gym. By the way, uh, I do website stuff, your website, which I, at the time I had paid someone to do a custom build. I was like, I think you were like, eh, your website's all right. And I was like, whatever. My website's the, the shit. But, uh, no, you, you came in and worked out. We immediately hooked up a trade because friends, if you find a programmer or somebody who can build a website, keep them close because you're always going to need them, especially if you're a small business owner, like I was. So we ended up doing some sort of trade or whatever. And then I think at one point you were like, Hey, I think my wife's going to come in and check it out. And yep. 
I, it, that, you tell the story because I, I can't remember exactly. Well, I came in, I saw your gym. A buddy of mine that I was going, that I was doing CrossFit with in Vancouver, um, he was a, he was an elk hunter and he saw one of your CrossFit hunting videos. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so he knew about you guys. And so when we moved up here, that's, the first gym I wanted to go check out. And so that's how I, that's how I was first heard about you guys. And so, yeah, came up there, wanted to do a trade and, uh, website, websites are something that's a very tradable occupation skill. It's a skill. Cause everyone needs a website, right? And, uh, and it's not like you're just a slap together or a little slap dick WordPress website. Like you're a programmer. You are like a nerd code guy. You can make apps. You can make, make it rain with code, right? I like to build stuff. So if it needs to get done, I can, I can usually figure it out. Then your wife came in. Was it right away or like down the road? I feel like she came in later, like a little hesitant. She came in a little bit later, but it wasn't too, it wasn't too much after. Both of us were into CrossFit and so we wanted to find a gym that we could trade at, train at and uh, find a community. Definitely, like meeting you guys and hitting it off. Alicia and I, my wife and I, I think you and Andrew are just some of the best people we've ever met. And I'm not trying to make you feel weird or whatever, just gonna say it publicly. Like we genuinely like love the Crawfords. Like you guys have always been super special for me and my wife. Like we just appreciate you guys. Um, your wife's uh, a badass as well when it comes to the gym um, and she gets after it. But we're gonna we're gonna bring this up, we just get it out of the way. You're a hunter. You you killed your first bull with a bow last year, sent me the text. I was with my dad at the time and I showed him on the mountain and I couldn't get like I couldn't get a hold of you. Like I didn't have enough service to get a hold of you. But I was so proud for you, man. Like Take us through your first ever bow kill. Like I got to get like the cliff notes version, but really want to tackle that emotion that you felt when you walked up on your first archery kill bull. Well, it was, um, after hanging out with you more, I became a lot more serious about elk hunting. And so for two years I had, I felt like I was serious about it, but couldn't quite get a bull. And I had a lot of opportunities and just couldn't couldn't quite get it done. And uh, so the third year was the lucky year for me, really, where I was sitting in a tree stand over some water that I had found. And um, I cow called and uh, a bull answered and he kept answering me and I, I kept cow calling <clears throat> and, uh, he, uh, I looked down the road, I could see, I could see a, an old four wheeler trail and I could, I, he started walking away. And so I just was patient in the past, you know, I, I in the past I'd hop down out of my tree stand and go after him. But the last, the previous two years that kind of failed for me. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, I thought, well, I'm just, actually I'd climbed out of my tree stand ready to go after him. And I thought to myself, you know, uh, just be patient. 
I climb back up in. Whoa, and, that little uh, voice, thank you. Yeah, for sure. And uh, and so I just kind of stuck with it. I didn't bugle at all. Uh, I was just cow calling softly. And uh, and then I started hearing him coming up the hill. And um, I was about 35 yards from some water. And um, when he came up, he had a cow with him. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, he had a cow with him. And uh, he was r- real hesitant until the cow got in the water and started splashing around. And then uh, he provided me with a, a perfect 35-yard broadside shot. And he didn't go far. And it was, it was, it was great. It was great to have three years of hard work pay off. Yeah, so you made a good shot. Let's go behind behind the scenes a little bit there. Like, so you're in an area that you hunted for for three years, right? Yep. And I don't know. This can be a tough question to figure out, but like, I want people to know like the matter of like intimacy of of an elk area. Like, you've you've hunted basically one little herd in a un, unique and niche area, but how many actual days do you have including scouting exploring exploration in three years is i'm guessing it's over 100 days but what do you think it's probably not quite 100 but it's pretty close okay so the previous two years i was lucky enough to have a flexibility in my schedule that i could hunt most days of the season probably 24-ish yeah. range. Um, not always all day, but right. at least a morning, evening, some of them all day. Cool. And so I enjoyed just getting to know the area really well and and trying to and figure things out, you know. I Going into it, I, I didn't know what the elk did, and so spending that much time helped me really kind of figure out where they would go, what their routines were, and... Um, that was very helpful. You kind of like putting, it's a puzzle and you're putting little pieces together each time you're out in the woods and you're not all those days that that you're out there were in September. You were doing, you were scouting in the spring and the summer and, and really learning different trails, different roads, different bedrooms, different finding old rubs, new rubs, running trail cameras. Like, so guys listening, like I preach a lot of mobile elk hunting, but, and you kind of have a pretty good mobile attack for that area, but ultimately you really like zoned in on a specific area and learned the intricacies, what the wind wants to do, how the elk like to navigate. Um, how important was that for you to basically find that water and put that tree stand up, which is something we've never really talked about too much. You just kind of did it, right? Yeah. Well, I feel like when you know an area that well, you can hunt so much more efficiently. All of your your time spent out there after you learn can be really high quality time. At first, the time is my time was somewhat low quality. I'm a little bit. A lot of times, I'm not in a good area, um, and so that scouting ahead of time um, pays off big during hunting season, so that that efficiency can be there. And something I I uh, 
realized even more on this trip that being on with with you just it got more and more efficient as the days went on yeah yep we the machine got more and more well oiled and and smoothly operating down here in arizona and we're going to get into that guys um you mentioned time so many times and that i forgot to mention my favorite sponsor of them all which is hashtag time chaser i am an actual time chaser many of you listening don't know what i'm talking about uh, if you're new to the podcast, uh, I'm actually making a shirt because I think it'll sell a ton of them and I think it'll put out an important message that I want, which is to be a time chaser. Not what I was, which in my early 20s, I was very guilty of being a money chaser. I was young. I was in college. I worked more than full time. I had like I made good money in my early 20s compared to most 20-year-olds especially full-time college student ones, undergrad and graduate, like I made six figures uh, in my early 20s as a very successful personal trainer, fitness manager, general gym manager guy. And all I cared about was how much money I could stack up. Now, fortunately, I was a little bit of a money chaser, which helped me um, save up money. I've always been a great saver, not a spender. Uh, My wife calls that cheap and frugal, I believe. But I will say this, Josh, you make me look like I'm a spender. You're the most frugal guy I've ever met. And I mean that in the nicest, sincerest way. I don't think you take offense to that. But no. you're a minimalist. You're, um, you are also a time chaser. What does it mean? Like, why are you a time chaser, not a money chaser? Well, I think you brought up an important point. When you're young, especially when you don't have a family, is a, a good time to to chase money while you can and then save that money so that when you get later on in life with a family you can have a lot more time available to spend with them to spend out in the woods and uh, do the things that you love it's important to me I think you know I think my mom I saw her example of uh, being frugal with money and that's where it came from through me yeah and um, so lucky lucky enough for me my wife is also pretty frugal and so that that really helps um, it helps us save money and then you can put that money to some some passive income and then later on you can you can you don't have to work so hard you can do the things that you really love. You can kind of make money work for you, you can, a little bit. Yeah, for sure. The more money you can save early, the better off you'll be later on. Yeah, it does. I mean, honestly, having some cash, cash is king, capital, being able to take advantage of business opportunities when they arise, not having to like borrow money to get in on a business or a real estate opportunity or whatever. And I don't like talking about money like crazy, but uh, something you said about chasing money in, in, in your early days is really important, but I, I want to give two examples of where I stopped chasing money and I started chasing my passion and eventually money started chasing me. Yeah. So when I got introduced to CrossFit, I thought it was the dumbest thing ever. I thought it was like, a, I'm a strength and conditioning coach, certified strength and conditioning specialist, CSCS, master's degree in human performance. Like I got all the, like all the, the resume I've been training professional athletes down in Arizona, athletes performance. I'm going to be an NFL strength and conditioning coach. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then I see this little CrossFit thing happening. I'm like, 
these guys are dumb. Their methodology is a recipe to get people hurt. And somewhere along the line, I opened up a speed school in Boise and I was also managing the personal training department at that gym. So kind of two roles. And I was being a strength and conditioning coach for like youth and collegiate athletes. And looking at the books with the gym owner and he was like a cool gym owner. Um, what is his last name? I want to give him a shout out. I can't remember. His first name is Josh. Anyways, he would pull up the P&Ls, profit and losses, with me, the manager, and show me. And I'd be like, well, dang, we're like breaking even. We're not even profit. Like, And he'd be like, it's all right. We need to come up with another revenue stream. And I'm like, I came up with it. I was like, we're going to train adults during the day, man. Kids are in school. College kids are in school during the day. Like, we're pretty dead in the middle of the day. Like, we need to, like, do some group adult training. But train them like athletes. They'll love it. And long story short is I eventually started integrating some of the CrossFit stuff into those classes. And, of course, I thought I should try it first. And so I did my first couple CrossFit workouts. And, you know, I'll be honest. I was hooked from the very first one. I'd never really gotten my teeth kicked in like that on a workout. And it wasn't, I mean, I started diving in on their literature. And there were some really good resources. And um, long story short, I got hooked on CrossFit. I started running basically a CrossFit affiliate, non-affiliate out of that speed school. And I got more out of training the adults during the day than I did the kids. And I eventually was like, I want to move back home and open my own CrossFit gym. And that's what I ended up doing. But I basically, at that point in my life, I stopped chasing like the P&Ls and the how much money can I make as a manager? And, and I was like, I'm going to go move in with my dad at age 26 and keep saving up money. And I'm going to open up my own gym and I'm not going to make money for at least a year, which I, I've said this on my podcast before, never took a salary for the first year, lived off savings, paid cash for all the gym equipment that I could afford, painted the walls myself. Signed a personal guarantee on a lease and just went for it. And after 11 years, I never made a lot of money owning a gym, like a CrossFit gym. But I met the best people in the world. And I felt like the richest man because I had like 200 members that I loved most of them. There's a few bad apples, but yeah. I loved yeah. most of them. And I'm still friends with so many people in Spokane Valley that... I have that shared bond of CrossFit with them. The other example, and it's a shorter example, is when I basically decided to sell the gym and go all in on elk shape because I'm so passionate about where fitness and elk hunting collide in the lifestyle, which is why you people are listening to this podcast because you share that same passion and interest. And I was like, screw it. I like I sold the gym. I don't have the only debt I have is eighty five thousand dollars on my house my cabin house is paid for all the vehicles are paid for all the college debts paid for all the credit cards are paid for because we did dave ramsey for about eight years at a snail's pace we don't do dave ramsey anymore um but we did it to get ourselves on a budget and And get us yeah andrea and i did the same thing we started with dave ramsey and super good 
program to follow, especially if you're you just need to need the basics on money management. Most people do need the basics. Most people need a budget. Most people need to identify their smallest debts and snowball them up to their biggest debts. Yeah. Um, we got to a point where we were good enough financially where we could have wrote a check to pay off the house, but it didn't make sense because $85,000 cash would make a lot more sense to have set aside for business opportunities or for a down payment on a second house that could be passive rental income or to start a new app with you or whatever, you know, like. Yeah, a lot of times the interest that you're paying on a loan for a house is a lot lower than you can earn with passive income somewhere else. Did you guys hear that? Say that again. A lot of times the, the interest on your house is a lot less than an in, the interest that you can be earning through passive income somewhere else, whether it's other real estate, stocks, whatever else it is, you, there's, a, there's a delta between those two that, that you can take advantage of. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm paying less than 3% interest. And let me give you guys an example. And I like showing my cards. Like, I like people knowing, like, to be, Dan is transparent. I like being known for being transparent. Yeah. And so, like, for example, an $85,000 balance on a 30-year loan at less than 3% interest is about a $900 a month mortgage. If I were to write a check and pay off my mortgage, do you know what my payment a month would be? for my insurance and my property tax. We did the math. It's somewhere just under $500 a month. Yeah. yeah. That so $85,000 would buy down it would only free up $400 a month, which would be 4800 a year. Right. Not and much. I wouldn't be able to take advantage of business opportunities. Right. So why not just use the interest as a write-off yep. and do the delta thing? And so I didn't plan on talking about money, but it is a thing. So I think to summarize, if you're young and don't have a family, chase some money, but in the back of your mind, don't be afraid to chase your passion. I think money will chase you when you're really doing something you absolutely love, which I do right now. And Um, and there's also, when you're young, you gotta make some sacrifices. Like you mentioned, living with your dad. Yeah. At what, 27? Yep. Uh, Other sacrifices like, don't buy the a brand new car with payments. You I should never buy a brand new car, but that's just my. Opinion. I have old cars still, and I could buy brand new cars if I if you yep. wanted to. Yep. But it, try not to compare yourself with other people, and and you, especially when it comes to making those sacrifices, it'll it'll serve you. Especially when it comes to hunting. hunting, don't compare your success to other people's success. Don't shoot a spike bull and be so proud that you killed one on day eight of a seven day hunt and you get on Instagram and you see Joe Rogan with the California bull that he killed that's over 400 inches and you'd be like, oh man, my bull's not good enough. But no, your bull's great enough. Oh yeah. I, I think that's comparison will be the thief of joy for, for many people. So that works both ways in hunting and money. But how did you get hooked into CrossFit because you're the same build as me. How tall are you? 5'7". Okay. What do you weigh? Uh, probably less than this now after this hunt, but probably in the 155 range. Okay. So we're literally identical. Like I'm 5'7", 155. 
and I fluctuate between 145 and 160 depending on if it's hunting season or not. Right. And when I'm 160, I'm built pretty good and strong. When I'm 145, I'm pretty good at hiking mountains. Yeah. yeah. And there it is. So you are extraordinarily strong for your size. You have you've deadlifted well over 400. You've back squatted well over 400. Um, Olympic weightlifting, you're not very mobile. But all in all, <laughs> all in all, you're a really strong cat for your size. How did you get into strength and conditioning? And moreover, like, why did you pick up CrossFit? Well, um, so it's funny. I, I think about this every once in a while. It's this tiny little things that make a big difference in your life. CrossFit was one of them for me. And I remember pretty vividly, I was hiking with a buddy in, um, it was a military testing range or something like that down close to Vancouver. And I was just kind of doing the the normal workout stuff at the gym with, with my wife. And I wasn't really seeing any results. And I was getting tired of programming my own workouts and that's what it was for me. Oh. And uh, he's like, well, you should check out this CrossFit thing. And I'm like, oh, I've never heard of it. And this was back in 2008. And so like a lot of people back then, I checked out the website. They had a bunch of videos up. I watched all the videos and uh, I tried out some of the workouts and, and it kind of crushed me. And so I knew this was something pretty, pretty cool. And something else that I like the workouts were very varied. I was really bored with my my typical routine, and so that's kind of where it started off for me. And um, yeah, let's fast forward to present day. You're not a member of a gym anymore, per se. What does a what kind of training are you doing? And what is like what is the bottom line? Like, what are you after? What are you pursuing when it comes to that fitness journey? For now, right now it's, I'm kind of in maintenance mode. I want to be ready for being able to go on a hunt like this. And so I try to train four days a week. Um, a lot of times I get some sort of a lifting session in with some cardio, maybe you throw a pack on, take the dog for a walk up some hills with some weight in the pack. Um, I also do some jujitsu and I roll with some guys that that I get some good cardio workout too yeah and that's something I forgot to mention before I I don't like doing cardio at all um and so CrossFit was a way that I could integrate that into my workout yep that didn't feel so boring yes the other thing about jujitsu is that you picked up you picked up rolling like you started rolling with guys years ago and then kind of it tapered off and then you picked it back up at age 40 what are you 42 43 43 so how long did you do jujitsu and then how long of a break and then how many times a week are you doing it now and and what belt are you and like geek out a little bit on the jujitsu vibe because i haven't done jujitsu yet it's on my radar but i i am um this is going to sound terrible don't send me an email but Yes, I do strength and conditioning, and I feel like it's very safe. I don't do anything too risky. But jujitsu, I'm afraid to get hurt and not be able to bow hunt. Like, that's my number one concern. Yeah. I guess jujitsu started when I started watching UFC back in the day. Um, 
And then I spent some time on a uh, remote work project and I need something, needed something to fill the time. And so I went to a gym and, and that was uh, in New Mexico. That was, yeah. Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, there's some fighters out of there in Albuquerque, especially. Yeah. Like, um, and so I trained for, it was a very short time, really. It was only like maybe a month or two. And then I moved back home and, uh, didn't have a gym and, and I always, so it was always in the back of my mind. And so for, for years, I never trained. When, when we moved up here, I, uh, I started at a gym and, uh, that gym immediately closed down after about another month. And so I was another long stint of not going. And then I started going to the current place I'm at and, uh, it was close to the kid's school. And, um, I met a, a bunch of good guys there. I, I go, I'm not too close to the gym, so I only get the, in there twice a week, but, um, it's been really, really good. So how long do you roll for? Uh, typically about, the class is about an hour, but typically the cardio or the actual rolling rolling lasts for anywhere from 30 minutes to 15 minutes. So do you kind of like have a structured lesson working on technique drills and skills? And then at the end you guys go live. Yeah, basically. Okay. Yeah. Oh man. And so how much conditioning is involved when you go live? Well, it's, it, you know, whatever you want to put into it. So if you, go hard usually the person you're rolling with is going to go hard as well and you know i'm not a big guy and so usually the people i'm rolling with are bigger than me yeah heavier than me and so i can usually get a good good cardio workout out of it and i just use my crossfit background as a advantage if i can keep that up then then i have an advantage over someone that gets tired later on just like anything else People, if you can, if you have that endurance, it'll serve you well in all kinds of areas. Nice. So you basically right now are trying to be fit for life and you do a mix of strength and conditioning at home and you roll a couple times a week. That's a pretty good balance. Yeah. Nice. I, I like it. It's been good for me. Well, I feel like we've, we've, we've got some good stuff out of the way. Let's get into this hunt. So I'm going to tell you right now, guys, I'm not going to tell you what unit I'm in Arizona, but I'm going to tell you this. It's my third time here. And if you have points in Arizona and you're like, well, I want to do that hunt, I would strongly encourage you not to burn your points on a late season Arizona archery hunt. It is by far the hardest hunt I know of, period. Uh, the two hunts that I would say is if you have less than, like in Arizona, you can draw with no points, one point. They have that, you know, they have a bonus pass and and I'm not here to talk about their draw system, but if you want to put in for Arizona, you're going to buy a hunting license. It's going to be somewhere around 165 bucks a year just to put your name in the hat. And then they don't charge you the tag up front. So they don't like take your money and hold on to it and earn interest off it. Like most States, they, you just got to buy your hunting license and put in and their draws like somewhere around January, February, if I remember right. And, and your license is good for one year. So you can come back and hunt deer and, December and January if you're into that archery wise and all that jazz but what I'm here to tell you is if you got like I would say more than 10 points I would not burn them for this hunt not even close I would keep just 
if you're in an age category where you can keep putting in, I would, I would die almost to hunt these elk in September. I think it would be like taking candy from a baby, candy from a child. I think there's just so many bulls per capital. And I think there's not that many cows compared to the, like the bull to cow ratio is insane compared to most places I've hunted, which is just about everywhere out West. Uh, I think based on how many rubs I see everywhere, how many bulls I've seen, I think it would be taking candy from a baby, bring a cow call and a bugle tube and let her rip. You know what I mean? Could you imagine what the bugling would be like during that time of the year? It would be out of control. It'd be out of control. So I think if you're like, I want to come to Arizona and do it proper, I would encourage you to stay the course, keep putting in for the top tier units. There's several, there's nine, there's 10, there's 27, even like 3A, 3B, 3C, 4. Um, all those ones are really, really good. There's uh, 23 North and 23 South and even 22. Like there's so many, like Arizona's legit 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 um try to get an archery rut tag um or get a even harder is an archery or i'm sorry a rifle rut tag which opens like september 23rd or something this is not fair and come down and be picky as hell and give yourself the whole season whatever they give you seven days or 12 days whatever it is and do it right now if you're in a category of i have less than 10 points i would say maybe start putting in for late and this is I can't believe I'm saying this but this is the truth I would put in for late rifle it opens up after late archery so it's going to open I think on Thanksgiving day and I don't think that's a fair hunt I think that's another like if you just treated it like archery and and got its advantages and glassed you could get across canyons and shoot three to four five five hundred yards and shoot a 350 plus bull with with a little bit of effort yeah. or a 330 bull with not as much effort for sure or whatever bull you want to shoot but i would uh i would love to have that late rifle tag myself yeah. it would be i would be trophy hunting for sure um the late archery opens depending on the unit somewhere early november like i can't they're all a little different and then they usually go for about two weeks ish so the first time I drew it, it was like 2015. Um, and my story in Arizona goes like this. Arizona used to be paper only. No internet, no online application. Very specific on the color of ink you had to use. A separate envelope for each species. I mean, you had to dot I's cross T's. You had to look up, you had to get the actual regs in hand and look up hunt codes and uh, when they switched to the first year, they switched to like all online, their website sucked and it was really hard to read the codes. And I ended up putting all my points into a cow tag instead of an elk tag. And I burned like probably eight points. That's going to hurt. And a bunch of other people did it too. And I think I, this is back in the days of maybe Facebook was out, but not everyone was on Facebook. Like you'd have to go to hunting forums to find out that you weren't the only dipshit who just burned eight <laughs> valuable years on a cow tag. I reached out to Fishing Game and they were like, tough luck, buddy, no refund. And so I didn't even come down for that cow tag. I wasn't gonna drive 24 hours to come hunt a cow elk. And I was salty. It's almost like they did that on purpose. It was a blessing in disguise though, in a way. 
because it forced me. So the very next year, I had my loyalty point. So I burned eight points, but going into the draw the next year, I had one point. I was like, man, I got to get that hunter safety point. And so I flew to Vegas, rented a car, drove to northern Arizona. I remember you telling me about that. Taking the online class and then taking the field day in person, which you had to. I don't know if you have to anymore. You might be able to do it all online now, which sucks because you guys are all going to do it and get that point, and I hate you. But I had to spend quite a bit of time and money to do it. So I got two, back to two points and started building points up again. And I was like, you know what, man? I just want to hunt Arizona. I know that late archery is hard, but I just want to, like, see it. So I drew it in 15. I don't know how many points. Came down with a buddy, Jason, who's a guy in New Mexico. I'm going to get him on the podcast soon because... He's a little salty about my podcast on privatization of elk, and he wants to share his side as a, as a guide's perspective, and we're going to argue on a few things and agree on a few things. So I'm going to get him on. But anyways, Jason and I came down, and we got our teeth kicked in, man. I think I got like three stocks in in eight days and, and saw a lot of elk, but the winds are so swirly here. That's the biggest obstacle in these canyons is just you think you got it all panned out and the wind changes and swirls. So we educated elk for eight days and came home empty handed. That was my first year. Second time I drew, I was a little more well prepared to be more mobile and to learn new areas and to try some new tactics. And I kind of realized in, in my second go around that I really wasn't gonna be able to sneak up on anything bedded. There's too much rocks, there's too much brush, oak brush and manzanita and prickly things and cactus that, and the lot of days here that's it's not windy. Like there's no wind whatsoever. Yeah. You can't sneak if there's no wind with all the noisy stuff. I mean, it's just, everything's dry, driest you can imagine. So in the podcasting world, I believe they call this a mid-roll advertisement. Anyways, I'm interrupting the podcast to hopefully have your attention to let you know these companies support elk shape and make this thing possible shout out to buck knives and post falls idaho spy point usa these trail cameras are affordable and they have the blue collar people in mind they have both cellular and non-cellular trail cameras great price points and they work and they will enhance your game numa outdoors with their 2021 lineup live check them out at numaoutdoors.com Discount code ElkShape20, take 20% off. Matthews Archery out of Sparta, Wisconsin. My favorite bow in hand, best shooting, most dependable, awesome technology, solid engineering. Go shoot the new bow at your local dealer. Black Rifle Coffee Company out of Salt Lake City, Utah. Veteran owned. They give a lot back to veterans. They're pro 2A. They're pro hunting. And they make damn good coffee. Discount code Elkshape, 15% off. Kafaro International. I rock the hoodlum. I rock the 22 mag. Check it out at kafarointernational.net. Crispy USA. I rock the Colorados, the Nevadas. See for yourself. No break-in period. Made in Italy. World-class craftsmanship. Next time you're doing some boot shopping, be sure to check out Crispy USA. Vortex Optics. Vortex Nation. Vortex Wear. Discount code is Elkshape, 20% off any apparel. Check out their UHDs, their Razor 4000, their spotters, and they have a lot of things when it comes to rifles that I don't know much about. Vortex Optics, veteran known out of Wisconsin, 
Love this company. Longest standing partnership. Be sure to support Vortex with their VIP warranty. Transferable, lifetime. You break it, they fix it. Wilderness Athlete, I discovered them in 2006. One of the best supplement companies out there. Not a marketing company. Use the discount code ELKSHAPE30 on your first purchase and save 30%. Last but not least, if you're buying any gear, go to blackovis.com. Be sure to enter ELKSHAPE at checkout and get 10% off your purchase. Back to the podcast. Eyes a bone, man. Yeah. Even, the, even the live things break like yeah. they're dead. Yes. Oh, that's a bright green bush. And you go through it, it snaps. You're like, oh. So in in my second go around, we're not going to share all the details, but in my second go around on day eight of an eight-day hunt, I found a, a bull that was in a position to where I could get in front of him. I knew where he was going, and I did, and I got a 20-yard broadside shot and killed like a 336-point cloud nine. And then um, there's this guy named Trent. Uh, I can't remember his last name, but he's Trent off the grid on Instagram. And he also runs Elk Assassins. We were friends on Instagram or whatever. And I messaged him I needed help packing a bull. And I'll never forget how epic. He dropped everything, drove hours, came to my waypoint, packed out half the bull. And he was in front of me. And when I got back to my truck, he had already left but he left me with a Domino's chicken barbecue medium pizza or large pizza that I ate in its entirety at my truck as the greatest pizza I've ever had in my life. So God bless you, Trent, if you ever listen to this podcast. So that was basically 16 days of elk hunting between two years and one shot opportunity, and I killed a bull. So five, six years later, I draw it again. We go down. And I kind of talked this hunt up a little bit to you that, hey, this is a cool hunt. You get to see a lot of bulls, but getting one killed is going to be next to impossible. So don't have high expectations. And uh, we left Spokane um, with enough time to drive straight down here without stopping and have a full day of scouting. And that's what we did, right? Like we pulled up to where I wanted to start with 45 minutes uh, of downtime, which we immediately fell asleep. And then my alarm went off, I swear, five minutes later, and it was, all right, let's get on the four-wheeler and go up to the glassing knob. I never fell asleep so fast. Really? Yeah. In sitting up in a truck. Oh, yeah. It felt like a bed. It felt like the most coziest bed. I closed my eyes and I was out. So we did. We drove, I think it was 22 hours straight, and uh, got to the glassing knob. And I told you where I thought bulls would be. And then as soon as it got light, there was freaking bulls right where I said they were going to be. Yes. Nice bulls. Yeah. Big bulls. Bulls that I don't see in other states. Bulls. No, I don't I don't see bulls like that. And that was pretty cool. And then um, once they went out of sight, we kind of were like, all right, we'll hunt here tomorrow morning. And let's spend the rest of the day. Uh, let's go learn some new country. And I know that trail cameras are actually going to be banned starting in 2022 in in Arizona. And it's just because basically it's been abused. I mean, anytime you have 40 trail cameras over a tiny water hole in the Arizona Strip and you got that many people going in and out to check it and disturbing wildlife, like eventually something's going to 
have to change. And so they went to the extreme route of where I'm pretty sure you can't use trail cameras on public land starting 2022. Yeah, that's, that's, that's going to suck. But you can this year. So we, I packed, I think six cameras and we went on a mission to find water that was not next to roads, water that you had to kind of hike to water that was close to rims where there was cover and canyons water that basically wasn't down low for cattle. And we put every camera out. We were on a trail camera rampage. Rampage. Uh, yeah, it opened my eyes on to how much information you could get out of your trail cameras. I, I thought, eh, what you do is you put a trail camera up, you let it sit for a month, and then you check it and see what's there. No, you can gain a lot of information after a few days and switch things up and just move things around. Yeah, man. That's exactly what's up. And the weather here was, like, extraordinary as far as from a comfortable sense, like years past, I've had rain, hail and snow, but it's always been really, really cold. I brought a bunch of stuff to stay warm. And I'll be honest, man, it was in the seventies, the first four days, not getting very cold at night, pretty dang comfortable. I, yeah, I can't complain. Blue skies, no wind, you know, just unreal. Weather was great. It was great. So we did the whole glass in the mornings get there at dark let the as it's barely getting light try to make out elk as fast as possible because our plan in the morning is to not put them to bed our plan is to see them where they're feeding get a heading on which way they're kind of going and try to beat them up the mountain or across the mountain and that's really the only way you're going to get it done unless you have some sort of tree stand or some sort of ambush spot already made and so the very first day we went to our spot and we saw those three bulls feeding and did the seven by seven come out that day too opening day yes opening day that's the first day we saw him nicest bull i've ever seen in arizona he was awesome i had him pegged at 370 plus um had him through the spotting scope the phone scope filmed him had you know more than enough time to kind of do some quick math and to know that he was over 370 in fact i flashed a number at you i'm not going to stay in the podcast but i'll just say just shy of 400 biggest bull i've ever seen in my life and he's in the middle of this like oak brush manzanita brush steep hillside in the thick of it and about two three hundred yards above where i killed my bull in arizona years back so we went after him we got right in the middle of that brush And I would say he was, at one point, he was 123 yards from us, and he was feeding our way, and we were just kind of inching our way through the loudest, noisiest, thickest, no-trail brush, like, and this brush just makes the loudest noise against your clothing and backpack. Yeah. And it cuts you up. I'm just covered in cuts. And luckily, we had a little bit of wind that day. Otherwise, I don't think we would have even gotten that close. Yeah, and we had this northeast wind for so many days. It was crazy. I don't know if that's typical, but that's what we had. And it was great for our position. But long story short, as we were inching our way towards him, trying to just get in a position to not shoot him where he was at, but kind of get to a position where he was going to feed his way in front of us, one of the other bulls spotted us and ended up barking. And then four bulls all took off. And... um, we actually followed up them up the mountain to see kind of where they went. And once we got over the other side, it just was 
thick pines and really not good country for still hunting, not good country for anything, for ambushing. It was just real like topography that just doesn't bode well for sneaking in on elk, I yeah. would say. Yeah, I agree. You couldn't see far enough ahead of you for, for good still hunting. The other thing was it was like weird that we ran into a guide and his client back there. Because they were making a bunch of noise. Yeah, they were building a brush blind over a salt lick. I don't even know if you're allowed to hunt salt, but it was definitely a salt lick. And they were building a brush blind, and we heard them breaking brush. And, uh, man, it was, uh, I was really surprised because they were both older. And it was a very physical hike to get where we were. And they were there, and they looked smoked. And they were setting up for the evening. And, the, and they had a dog with them, too. He, the guide had his dog with him. And he was going to drop his client off. And somewhere they had glassed up the same elk as us. And they were hunting the same elk. And they knew the elk would come back that way in the evening. And they were set up with a good wind and a good pinch point. The one thing I didn't like about that situation was, like, I was, like, never seen anyone in there before. So it was a little bit like, dang it. Um... We'd also come across a deadhead six by six that had died probably within the last couple of weeks. Still stunk. Yeah. Really nice 320 class six point deadhead. And in Arizona, you can't take out deadheads. So we took some photos, thought it was really cool, but we did see a boot track walk right by it. And we were like- Single boot track. A single boot track. And then we ended up running to that guide and his client. And I remember thinking, I bet that guy saw the same deadhead and he's a good rule follower and just left it. That's cool. Yeah. We'll get back to that story in a second. Um, but we spent the rest of the day in that area, took a really long nap because we were sleep deprived and um, did the evening hunt, didn't see much. But I think we saw four or five bulls the very first day, all good bulls too. So the next couple of days, I think it was three days in a row, we'd hunt that spot in the morning We'd get, we'd see the bulls in the same brush field. We'd try to get in front of them. And, um, man, it was just, that brush field was too loud. And we even built two trails. We did take the time to cut out like a little sneak trail through there. And it just didn't matter. It just. And it wasn't just a little sneak trail. It was a pretty long trail. You were. We spent hours cutting brush. Yeah. Two trails. With saws. Over half a mile each trail. Yep. I mean, we spent some labor because we thought it would pay off. And I think it would have eventually. It was, it definitely allowed us to get in there without making as much noise the, the next few days. Yes. But I do remember the most clutch moment was on day three. And I, you'll have to tell me where I sent you, but I sent you somewhere and I was like, I'm going to go check all the trail cameras that we put out three days ago. Where did you go? Was it down to check that water? Oh, yeah, that's what it is. So yeah. we sent you on, we found a water on the map that was like, you had to hike to. And we were convinced it was so close to where we're seeing all these bulls. We that thought these, that's where they were getting the That's water. where they're getting water. So we gave you a trail camera and we said, hike down there. Actually, did you, did you have a camera with you? I did, yeah. Yeah, and we sent you on that journey. And while you went and did that, I went and checked trail cams. Yeah, we thought for sure people were hunting that water because there was a bunch of rigs parked there that weekend. And so right close to where that water would have been. Yeah. But you still had to hike to it. So 
You go down. What'd you see? Dry dirt tank. Okay. Bone dry. Well, there was a, a small, there was a, a creek bed there with a mud puddle size amount of water. Just nothing, nothing that anyone, anything was hitting. No tracks and uh, disappointing. Disappointing because it was so close to where those bulls were living. And it's a place where people can't get to easily. They would, you have to hike down and it's, it's not, not as simple. And we got to talk about wa water is everything in Arizona. There are very few running creeks. There's a few. And if you can find those, there'll be some elk there. But largely the elk are going to have to get water on man-made tanks and dirt tanks. And the thing about that is they're pretty far spread out. And so a lot of elk will travel. Elk are already nomadic. But when you add water that's spread out, it moves the elk around a lot. And so if you see like this 370 plus bull that we saw, we only saw him for three days and then he was gone. He's probably onto the next water. He probably traveled a long distance, miles and miles and miles. And once he gets water, he's in a new little area. And so I think the elk do like big loops, yeah. big water loops where most elk, specifically bulls, don't get water during daylight hours. Um, so sitting water is very unattractive to me just from years past and running cameras is all the bulls I generally just nighttime video or photos of them and that's fine I mean they, they've learned like you go to water during daylight you're gonna get shot and there's usually a hunter at every water hole so you can plan on that so while you're checking the water I'm running and gunning and I pulled every camera and found a couple of new water holes that I hadn't found before so I was moving cameras around got back to camp and checked all the cameras. And I'll tell you what, I was shocked. There was one tank that was right off of a very shitty four-wheeler trail. And it had maybe three inches of water in the bottom of this man-made tank. It was mostly slime. And it looked green slime. And I only reason we put a camera there is because it was so close to the rim where it was remote and that the elk could get there pretty quick and the chances of maybe seeing elk in daylight were higher that's what i thought that camera was the only camera of six that had elk every day between 4 and 5 30 p.m including bulls getting water it was their favorite spot and we had the trail camera set on video mode it was a spy point and it was showing bulls Nothing, like one really nice bull that I was like, okay, I want to shoot him. Yeah. And then a couple of rag bulls and then about 10, 11 cows. And I was like, dude, that's a great evening setup. So we ended up driving up there on day four. I brought a Zenit ground blind and we set it up 16 yards from the tank because there was no other option. There was, it was just the way that the terrain was, there was no other option. And um, I jumped in that blind and sat it that night and absolutely nothing came in but cattle yeah. and you sat with me yeah and on a side point uh sit in the chair that you're going to sit in for a while and see if you can sit in it for multiple hours the chair i brought in there was horrible and i was squirming around a lot i fired you yeah I, I think was kicked out i did i fired him so the the next day we did another glass session from our spot we went out, every time we glassed from that spot, we ended up going after elk. I was getting a stock every day. 
Um, and then that evening I said, I think it was day five. I said, Josh, I'm sitting in the water by myself, self-filming. You move too much and, um, you can go, go, uh, you can drop me off and then go check the trail cameras and glass in the evening. And that's actually really handy to have another guy with you glassing, doing evening sessions, trying to find a new place or bulls to hunt. And um, that night I had 10 cows and three bulls come in at 16 yards. And I mean, it was one, first off, I went in with just a long sleeve shirt on because it was hot. But once that sunset, those last 30 minutes, the temperature dropped 20 something degrees, like probably went from 60 to 40 in 20 minutes. Yeah. As soon as the sun went down or close to the horizon, it was getting cold. Fast. I was shivering. And then the elk show up, my adrenaline peaks. I was like uncontrollably shaking. And I was too close to like these elk. I barely got the camera turned on. And I filmed some of the most epic 16 yards away with a big long lens. Elk getting water. And these elk came in so cautiously like whitetail. They were tiptoeing their way one step at a time, the lead cow. And she'd get close to the water and then she'd get nervous. And then the bull was a five point. He came in with her and they just kind of circled it slowly and they wouldn't commit to the water. And finally a calf's like, like, I don't know what the big deal is guys. I'm getting water. The calf just goes in and starts chugging water. And as soon as the calf did, then all the elk just pile in and start drinking water. And, um, the water is just nasty. I can't believe that they're drinking that. When you showed me the footage, it was just pandemonium at the water tank after they started drinking. And once they started making noise, then I could kind of like get set up to shoot something. I kind of got my bow in my hand. I was 16 yards away. I mean, I could not, I felt like I couldn't even swallow my own spit, like without them hearing me, you know? And, um, Two other bulls came in, the biggest being a, a bigger five, and um, I elected to pass and and just really, really enjoyed the 30 minutes I had with them in, until it got dark. And then while it was dark, they were still there. And fortunately, you came to pick me up like at the blind, and that scared them away, and I was able to get out without really educating them because they hear four-wheelers all the time. And I'll tell you right now, the elk heard you coming a long ways away and it didn't bother them. Yeah. But as soon as you were within, I would say 100 to 200 yards and the sound of your machine was like undeniably like you were coming, yeah. we couldn't see your headlights, then they, they left. Yeah. But they had a, like a 200 yard tolerance, which and was interesting. Re- yeah, and I didn't realize at the time that after I stopped and turned the four-wheeler off, I thought I heard a, a cow call and I thought, oh, that's strange. I didn't realize that they had just left because I drove down there with the four-wheeler. And you were like looking around and then you see me get out of the blind. You're like, oh, why are you still in the blind? I'm like, I couldn't get out there. Elk were there the whole tell you pulled up. Um, so I was stoked because we had a big six point that had come in on camera with the cows at one point while we weren't there. And then I had three bulls show up with those 10 cows. I was like, dude, we now... Like you said, we now have a well-oiled machine. Mornings, we got a great glassing spot. We're getting opportunity every day. And then evenings, by the time we hike out, drive all the way back to camp, get lunch, it's time to go sit the blind for the last three hours of the day. Like we're making the most of our time. 
So day six, um, we ended up going to a brand new area. Our spot had kind of dried up. We put a lot of scent in there. We had boogered a lot of different bulls, whether they heard us or smelled us or saw us. So I just found the nastiest canyon that had no roads to it. And we drove there and we dumped down in there and I ended up glassing up seven or eight different bulls. 20 something close to 30 different cows including what did we see an albino cow once yep. in a lifetime for me for sure yeah i've never seen an albino anything i don't uh, think i'll i'll ever i'll ever see one again that was very special to see see her i remember when i saw her i was like josh there's like a doll sheep or a regular ah, sheep in the middle of this elk herd yeah, on the side of the mountain you didn't have the the spotting scope so you couldn't quite see it and I was up the hill and you just came running up the hill towards me. You were all out of breath. I'm like, what's going on? And uh, yeah, you told me about it. I was like, oh. I gotta get the spotting scope. So I grabbed the spotting scope, go back down, get the phone scope out. And it's sure enough, it's an albino cow elk hanging out with regular cows. Man, that thing sticks out like a sore thumb. Oh, for sure. And uh, that was pretty cool. We ended up finding a really nice shooter bull He's probably like 340, and he's 340 with his fourth and his fifth broke off. So think about how big that bull is. He's got an f- unbelievable frame, unbelievable fronts and thirds, thirds that just kick way out off the sides of his main beams, main beams that are 60 inches long. And the side that's broke off is all palmated still, just a big chunk of mass. Yeah, it looked crazy. It looked like a moose antler on that side almost. And he decides to bed in the bottom of this canyon, like the very bottom. And I'm like, dude, Josh, we we can kill him. And we didn't really talk about if we killed him, like the recourse involved. But I think both of us knew in the back of our mind that we were kind of signing up for something that maybe we need to like rent a helicopter. Yeah. No joke, guys. I've been in a lot of canyons. This is by far the steepest, nastiest. It was harder to go down than it was to go up. For sure, yeah. All the other places I thought, oh yeah, this is gonna be a bad pack out if we if Dan kills something here. This one, I was like, I hope I don't die. If I, I hope I, I can come home to my wife. When we started going down this canyon, we immediately got cliffed out. We had to go through some slides. We were trying to not make noise. And eventually we got on this ridge that would take us right to him. And we were getting like, I think we were 399, 399 yards was the line of sight to him. And we were going down the ridge, pretty quiet. And we heard all chaos break out. There's elk below us that we couldn't see because they were on our side. And we bumped four cows and a six point bull, a small six point. And we can just hear rock sliding as they're running down the canyon. They run to the bottom, they cross and run right past our bull that's bedded in the most perfect spot. Well, when the rocks started sliding and the elk were running, they cross and come up past our bull. Our bull just kind of gets up, but he doesn't seem to give two shits. He's done with the rut. He's like, whatever. All four cows' tongues are dragging on the ground because this canyon's so physical and and they're going up the mountain. And then we hear a bull one finger over on our side, just start bugling. It was crazy. He's bugling at the sounds of these elk running. Yeah. And he bugles, and how many times did he bugle? At least eight times. 
eight bugles in a row and the bull we're going after eventually answers him. Yeah. And I'm looking at my phone or my watch and it's November 17th and I've just heard 11 bugles in a row. That was pretty cool too. And then I'm like, well, one of these cows might be in heat because that bull was with those four cows. He ran with them all the way out. This bull is one finger over like a satellite screaming his head off. This giant herd bull looking bull down the bottom bugled once. Huh, I didn't bring a bugle tube, did you? Josh's like, no, I don't have a bugle tube in my pack. So anyways, we ended up deciding to keep going after this bull, ignoring the bull bugling to the right of us. We saw him, he was a nice, I would say five by five, but really he's a six by six. He's got little, little points at the end on each side but he's like a wide 300 inch five by five, which they just don't make those in any other state seems like. So we're going after this 340 broke off bull full of character. And because the elk went by him, he got out of his bed, fed for about 30 minutes and rebedded. We watched where he rebedded. And I sat there across the canyon, probably 250 yards from him trying to size up every possible, plausible stalking option. Do I go down, cross the creek, go straight up at him? No. What if I go way left, cross, and get above him? No. He's basically got rock slides on both sides of him, a cliff above him, and he's in the middle of, between a tree and Manzanita. Like, there, there's just no way to kill this bull. That's why he's still alive. <laughs> he was in the perfect place. You can't get to him. It's his little fortress. So I'll be honest, Josh, I was like, well, we can get down right across from him, which would probably have been about 70, 80 yards is how steep these canyons are, and just wait for him to get up and feed in the evening and probably get a shot. But then I started looking behind us on the, how to get out of there, and I was like, yeah, I don't want to hike out of this in the dark at all. I don't have life insurance. My wife better not listen to this. And... I seriously don't know if we could get out in the dark. I just don't think it would be safe. These are things that I generally don't say on a hunt. Like, and then I started thinking, okay, if I kill this bull, how am I gonna get him out without losing the meat? How am I gonna get him out without losing my life? Because, anyways, long story short, is we 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 we, we basically vetoed this stock. I, I, I pulled the plug on it, which is something I rarely do, but it just, it wasn't going to work. And I told Josh, I was like, Hey man, let's go back up and call that bull in. That's on our side. And you're like, okay, I had a cow call. So we started going up and my goal was to get, go up the spine of this finger, get on his level. And by this time it was about 11 AM. I figured the wind would be going straight up. And if we're at his level, I could cow call. And this bull would probably just come right in. And so we started hiking up the canyon and the bull was on the shaded side of this finger because it's so steep, there's a little bit of shade because the sun can't get to it. And as soon as we, and I knew he was there because we watched him, we watched him kind of basically bed down in that stuff. As soon as we hit the shade, the wind was going straight down. And I was like, okay, we can't get on his level. He will smell us. He'll come underneath us. 
So I told you to get turn that camera on. I let out three cow calls and he bugles yeah. immediately. And I was like, oh shit. So I immediately was like, all right. I started grabbing rocks, throwing rocks below us, trying to sound like there were several cows. I'm letting out cow calls three or four at a time, this way, that way. And I'm throwing rocks. And after I make all that sound, I'm like, all right, we got to, you know, I'm calling for myself. We have to move up. So I side-heeled around. He bugles again. And I knew he was coming in closer. And I saw, like, if I got around this log, I would have some shooting lanes probably out to 30 yards. Well, as soon as I crossed that log and stepped into that opening, that bastard saw me about 70 yards through the thickest stuff. He was sitting there staring, which I figured he was, but I didn't think he'd be able to see us. He sees me and, and whirls and takes off running. And, like, as fast as I got excited that a bull was hot and bugling and coming into cow calls on November 17th, it was over. It was over. Right then. But we got great footage, great audio. I've never heard a bull that hot. Must have been a cow that got missed during the rut and came into second cycle. Yeah. That's the only thing I can figure. So we came super close. Love that area, but need a helicopter to get an elk out of there. Realize that we probably shouldn't hunt here because if you kill something, you may not get it out and you're literally like have a chance of losing meat. I think guaranteed we would have lost meat. I don't see any possible way we would have got it out without losing meat. There's just nowhere to keep it cool. Even in the bottom, it's just not that cool. The sun hits it. And, so, and I fell without it meat on my back. And so it just, safety was an issue too, especially in the dark. Well, when we tried, so we left, we left at about 1130, started hiking out. And when we hiked out, I would say 90% of our hike out was on rock face outcroppings and literally bouldering. Yeah. And I never looked down and I never really looked back to see if you were okay. I was worried about my own carcass and I was like, just keep moving forward. And we rock climbed out of that canyon. Climbing out was pretty fun. It was absolutely, absolutely fun, fun, but there's no, no way to do what we did with meat on your back. No way. I would not. Or a rack? No. Yeah. Or, yeah, a rack would have been almost worse because it would have been sticking out when you're trying to climb up those rocks. So I chalked up that day as, you know, that was really exciting and fun opportunity to see a lot of elk, including an albino, hear a baker's dozen bugles, call in a bull, make a stock on a bull. I mean, it was just literally, like, this day couldn't, that was day six, couldn't get any better. So in the afternoon... We decided to. Um, you were still, we, you were still fired from the blind, but somehow you convinced me to come into the blind with a new chair, a chair that different chair, different clothes that different weren't clothes. that weren't noisy. So we sat the blind, and dude, you did awesome. Like you didn't move a muscle, dead silent. And then the cool thing is, is we figured out. Hopefully, this is not illegal. I don't think it is illegal. We figured out that the there was a way to turn the water on because there was a storage tank above to get add some water to the algae water. So when we got to the blind, we turned the water on and got it, I don't know how many gallons we added, but we let it run for a little bit and get it kind of filled, not filled up to the top, but just so that actually water was in there. And so we, we let the water run for 30 minutes and then we moved the blind as well. We moved it 
about five yards back from where I had it in a better spot and a better angle. And then we brushed that in so well that nobody could see that there was a ground blind there. Like you just literally would have to look at the right spot and stare for a second to know that it was a ground blind. Yeah, people were just driving right on by. Yeah. And they, they didn't see it. Nobody the first place that they'd stop and look at it and, and say and talk about it. The second place, everyone drive right by. No, you no one would see it. And I had one window open, like a small window to shoot out of at the water. And then I had a teeny tiny window cracked just to get the camera through. So you had no visibility. You had to rely on me, which is boring, right? Just sit there and wait for me to tap your knee and say, turn the camera on. Yeah. We sat, nothing came in nothing came in and so I was getting pretty discouraged because the trail camera had elk on parade three days straight the first time I sit it nothing comes in second time I sit it it's epic ten cows three bulls the next time we sit it nothing so day seven rolls around and we decided to go back to our original glassy knob that we had burned out and see if any new bulls showed up. And we did. We got on there and I saw a bull in the brush field just as getting light. Didn't bring the spotter, didn't phone scope him. I said, let's go. Like we knew we just, you didn't have time anymore. Like the elk had changed their behavior in the morning. In the first part of the hunt, it seems like they'd feed till nine in the morning. And the moon wasn't full when we got there. And by that time, it was full moon, like full on full moon. And it seemed like, well, the day before, it seemed like the elk, you'd almost see them bedded at first light. Yeah. And then the next day, you'd see them like literally for five minutes. And then they'd be on their way to their bed. So we knew that we kind of had to cross this canyon fast to have any chance. And we got over there and sure enough, the bulls had already fed out but we found two new bulls still feeding. One was a 366 point that Josh thought was a rock because I glassed him up and I thought it was a rock at first, to be honest. And I glassed him up and I'm like, holy shit, Josh, get that bull on video, turn the camera on. And you're like, I I don't see him. And I'm like, dude, are you blind? It's like the giant yellow rock. That's a bull. And he's like, that's a bull? Like, yeah, and you got great footage of that. And I didn't know next to him was a five point. And they, um, I saw one more bull flash in the saddle. And then the big 360's like, it's just like the clock expired. And he's like, all right, I gotta go. And he just takes off running towards the other bull. The other bull's another 356 point. And they go, they go from feeding to just like almost like something bumped them. It wasn't us. It wasn't the wind. It was just like they were on a full moon program now. And they were like hauling butt to their bed. And we were like just, we were done. We were out of luck. And so at this point, I know that we need to leave Saturday morning at the latest. Because you had booked an airfare ticket in case I was going to hunt the rest of the season. But I can tell you right now, my wife, talking to her on the phone that day, Mm -hmm. having two kids and being, I don't know, I was out of wife hunting time based on our conversation. She wasn't mean, 
but she wasn't. She had nothing nice to say to me. You could tell it was you were. You used your. Uh, I burned it. Yep. And I was like, I told you, cancel your flight. I'm gonna drive home Saturday. You don't have to waste your points on your airline. I'll hunt tonight and Friday, and that's it. And so, pressure ratcheting up the pressure. I'm gonna go sit the blind. The elk have been there four out of seven days or four out of six days. Maybe they'll come in tonight. And um, I ended up asking you to go to a a spot in glass for the evening. And I was just going to set the blind solo. Yeah, we wanted to see if those six points were going to come back in the evening. When you see a 350 and a 366 point go into a bedding area, you want to see if they come out. So we put Josh on the mountain. And then I rode over to um, the blind. And as soon as I was, and I park a long ways away from the blind. Like, I don't know. How far do you think that walk that is? I don't know. It's it's a ways. 500 yards? At least. Yeah. And I, again, there's a four-wheeler trail that goes right by the the tank. I made a sign on my four-wheeler and I taped it to the back saying, Hunter in blind, point arrow. Not that that would deter anyone, but I did have a few four-wheelers on trail camera riding through. And I just didn't want anyone to ride through at prime time. So I didn't block the road. I just pulled over and made it so that sign was super obvious on the back of my four-wheeler. And if I saw a sign like that, I wouldn't keep going. So you're going to at least deter. And the road dead ends Yeah. on the map. It dead ends. And so people know like, oh, well, if I go up, I'm just going to ruin this guy's hunt. I might as well just turn around here. So I put the sign up and I'm walking as quiet as I can up the rockiest four-wheeler trail. And it's all uphill and it's steep. And I'm almost to the blind and I hear the sound of a hoof hit against the water tank, the metal water tank. And I'm like, shit, the elk are already at the water. And I was early. It was like 310. Earlier than some of the other days. Well, I get up there. There's no elk. And I check the trail camera. Sure enough, there's three cows, three elk cows getting water. I got to the camera at 315. I had bumped elk. I was like, dude, that's not good. Because you kind of want cows to be at the water. Because the bulls are real picky. The bulls are way more particular about coming to water than the cows. And for good reason. And when you have cows there, it seems like the cows always show up first. And then the bulls will like just barge into the water and kick the cows out of the way so they can get water. And I was like, oh man, you might have just ruined your chance. Because uh, it'd be a lot nicer to have three cows getting water when you're in the blind. Yeah. So I get in the blind and um, about 5.20, it's the sunsets. And so once the sun sets, I know I got about 20 minutes of good filming light. So I just turn my camera on and let it re- record. I just turn the ISO up, open the aperture, and just let her eat. You're just guessing that yeah. you got the settings right? Yeah, because I don't... I can't physically turn the camera on. It makes too much noise. I'm only 20 yards away from the blind. And so what I end up doing is um, turn that on. And within six minutes, I see cows coming. One, two, five, seven, ten. And they don't even hesitate. Like they don't tiptoe in. They just come piling in. And all ten of them are getting water. One of them jumps in the middle of the metal tank and splashing around and then just chugging water for minutes and minutes. And my daylight's dwindling and I can only see the tank. I can't see if an elk's coming from any other way. 
and all the elk get done getting water except for two and they start milling all around me. I'm literally surrounded by elk and they're loud. It's all rocks. It's just rocks moving, brush breaking. I can hear them munching on oak brush and manzanita. And I look out the little window where the camera is and I can see an elk standing there and I kind of peek a little bit more forward, lean, lean, and I see a rack. And all I can see is the fronts and the fronts just shoot way out and hook up and I'm like, well, based on the, your G1 and G2, you're a shooter. And this bull just, I can hear him take one step closer to the water and stop. And he does this for like five minutes, felt like 20 minutes, man. And my bow is now in my hand. I got my release on. I am like, I am ready to rock. And he comes right up to the edge of the, the brush and only his head sticking out. He's got to move three more steps and I got a full shot and he'll be at the water and he takes one step and I'm like my heart is just pounding it's because he's taking his sweet time and he's just looking left and right and just pivoting and so much more cautious than the cows the cow he takes another step and now I kind of have a shot but not really I don't like where his leg like the position of his leg it's not forward enough there's there's not good exposure I'd have to be, yeah. Finally, he takes one more step and he puts his head into the tank to get water and I pull back and then he just, the sound of me pulling back, he lifts his head up real quick and now I'm at full draw and I'm like leveling, leveling and then he puts his head down and boom, I shoot and I hear the sound and he spins and runs off and I'm like, I remember thinking, I forgot to look at what he is. I just knew, I saw the fronts. I don't, I didn't know what I shot. Honestly, I thought I shot a six point based on the fronts and I didn't really size them up. I didn't really care. I had one day left and, um, made the shot, looked at my watch. I think it was 5:45. I had like maybe five minutes of camera light left. You got a lot of pressure because you're almost out of days, almost out of minutes of that day. Yep. And, um, so what I did is I, I sat, I, that's the beautiful thing about having it on film is I watched the shot over and over in the blind and, um, I'm like, I couldn't tell where I hit. I could only really see the sign, like the sound. And I was like, man, that's, that's so anyways, I waited about 30 minutes and I just snuck out of the blind as quiet as possible, left all my stuff in the blind, grabbed my headlamp. I walked over to where he stood, didn't see any blood. And I'm like, man, that had to pass through. So I went looking for my arrow and I found it completely covered in red blood. And I was like, well, that's good. So I got to pass through red blood, knew I hit him, heard the sound, found the arrow. I'm like, okay, I'm going to just try to get a bead on which way he went and look for a little bit of blood. Um, The wind's going down. He kind of went uphill. I won't bump him. I went about 20 yards and found some pretty good blood. And then I took, I went about five or 10 more yards and just found more blood. I was like, okay, he's got a hole on both sides. He's bleeding out both sides. He's really bleeding good out his left side. Um, And then I found a really big blood patch, probably the size of a pie plate. And I shined my bright light on it and I could just tell that is, that is 
liver blood mainly with some lung, like some lung bubbles in it. And so then I started thinking about the shot angle and I was like, you know what? I thought he was broadside, but there's a chance he was actually quartering away. So maybe I hit liver in one lung. I don't know. And meanwhile, I dropped you off on top of a mountain. You got a three-mile hike back to the camp or to the road. And then who knows? I got to go get you. And so when in doubt, back out. So I grabbed my shit. I rode the four-wheeler many, many miles. My four-wheeler check engine light comes on and my four-wheeler starts kind of limping. And I'm like, oh, great. This is, I shoot a bull and my four-wheeler is breaking down. This is not good. And I got to go get Josh. Long story short is I finally got my four-wheeler to the truck and I left it at the trailhead and then just drove my truck to camp. You, I picked you up, brought you back to camp. And then um, we watched the footage. And I have like Adobe Premiere and QuickTime and I could slow it down frame by frame. And we both could tell, I didn't, I couldn't film it in 120 frames a second for you camera geeks out there. Because when you when you do a high frame rate, it requires more light. And if you do that, you lose shooting light. So I filmed it in 24 frames a second. Uh, and so you really don't have a lot of frames to work with on seeing the arrow. In fact, you can't really see the arrow at all. It could skip a frame probably. Yes. But we could tell where there was a hole that went into the elk. And after that, I was like, okay, man, that's definitely liver for sure, which is a dead elk. But that could take up to four hours. Might have got one lung, but not for sure. So we decided to... Unfortunately, that took a long time for me to get back to camp. Probably hour and a half. We made dinner, watched the footage. Three hours went by like that. It was the fastest waiting time because usually that takes forever. Yeah, we didn't really have to... It didn't seem like we had to wait because we were far enough away that as soon as we got dinner eating and, and back, it was enough time had passed that we got all geared up i busted out my brightest flashlight you got your headlamps and we got it really got cold fast so we got really bundled up and drove over to the four-wheeler fired it up and it, it ran normal i don't know what happened but it was running normal and so we ended up pulling right up to the spot and getting out and i showed you the blood and i'll be honest josh it was really good blood right at the crime scene and then, I was like, oh, no problem. No problem. And then, probably within a hundred yards, it dried up so fast to where we were basically relying on his tracks. Luckily, he ran downhill. Downhill and, and dug in. And and you could see tracks and follow his tracks. So you'd be following his track, hoping it was his track. It was pretty fresh, pretty dirt. And then every once in a while, you'd see a speck of liver blood on the side of a rock. And so it'd be like, we'd go 10, 20 yards and then we'd kind of run out of tracks and we'd have to kind of like scurry around and then one of us would find blood. It'd be like, blood, okay. I would say we trailed for about 45 minutes and I ran out of blood. And so I'm over on some weird like elk trail looking for his track and I hear you say something like blood. And I said, what? You got blood? And you're like, yeah, 
uh, bull. And I said, did you say bull? He's like, yeah, yeah, you bull. And I'm like, like, you see the bull I just killed? Like, we're 50 yards away from each other. And you're like, yeah, I see your bull. I'm like, are you serious? And you're like, yeah. I'm like, you're not messing with me. You're like, no. I'm like, can you show some enthusiasm? Like, yeah, bull down, found your bull. No, Josh is so chill. You have so much chill in your life that you're just taught. You see my bull laying there dead and you think it's a good idea to just go almost whisper and be like, yeah, bull. Like, why are we? So, so in my defense, we were in whisper mode at this point because we didn't know if we were going to bump him. We just, and then after that, you kill me. I wasn't, I didn't turn my bright, bright light on. So when I said that, I didn't a hundred percent know if he was dead, dead, if he was dead or if he was your bull. And so, see, I thought you knew he was dead and you're just like, still like just being quiet and not excited. I thought you'd... I do have chill, but it usually... So it was... I did have a little bit of a, a reason to be... be okay, that makes more sense. So when I like... I'm like, Josh, I finally get it out of him that he's looking at the bull and then he shines his bright light and he's like, yeah, he's dead. Then I hooped and hollered because I was so stoked. Bull only because you, you were getting a little nervous. At this oh point. man, at this point I was like, the blood totally dried up. There wasn't that much blood. It was totally liver, which means if we don't stay on his track or find blood, like he could go lay down and die anywhere in this shithole and we're not going to get him. So he bled all internal. Almost. Yep. Almost all internal. And we did get one lung and liver and it was quartering away. That shot was way more quartering than I thought. And, um, the camera view is different than mine because it's five feet away in the blind pointing through a different hole. So, yeah, man, I would say we ran tracking. That bull probably went no more than 150 yards, but as the crow flies, probably 100 yards from where I shot him. And he ran straight downhill. And he probably died pretty fast. He probably died immediately. He was stiff as a board when we got there. So we took a few photos and did a little video and he died in a spot that was super flat and awesome. So I laid out my tarp, Josh skinned around the elbows and the kneecaps. I made a line, a, a line cut along the spine, took the neck meat, shoulder, backstrap, hindquarter, laid it all down on my tarp. And then we cut the skull plate off and then flipped him over, left the guts inside, repeated the process. The meat was good to go. And then what we ended up doing is we, we um, went over to the tarp and I just kind of gave you a tutorial on how to debone meat, which was really cool to do. And we deboned everything. Yeah. And man, did that save a lot of weight. You sure did. And we two tripped it out. Yeah. What were you going to say? Well, it was important to save that weight because of the road back for the four-wheeler. And with the four-wheeler kind of acting up, we don't want to drive it any more than we had to. I did not want to do two trips on the four-wheeler in and out. So what we did is we deboned as much meat as possible. Um, on the way out, Josh grabbed um, a, a hindquarter and a deboned shoulder and half a neck. I grabbed the back straps and loins 
I grabbed a shoulder, debone shoulder, neck, as much of my gear as possible, and we hiked up to the four-wheeler, got the ground blind taken down, the chair, the trail cam, and we put everything on the four-wheeler, strapped it down, and then we went back down, and you grabbed the rack and the camera, video camera, and I grabbed the hindquarter and my bow. We hiked that up, and we strapped everything we could down, and then where your feet go on a four-wheeler, we put sacks of meat there, and my four-wheeler's got a seat on the back, so Josh is on the seat holding two video cameras, I got my bow strapped to my backpack inches away from his face. We got my pack was full of meat on the front of the four-wheeler. Strapped down and then loose meat on both sides. I don't know how much the four-wheeler weighed, but I weigh 155, you weigh 155 plus gear, plus a ground blind, plus an entire elk and a rack. The four-wheeler was, and it was bottoming out on the way out. It was bottoming out and we had to go six miles through basically a four-wheeler trail that's got so many washouts and like you would not want to take a full-size truck down this road no so we got back to the truck at about i don't know 2 30 in the morning we got back to camp at three in the morning and the meat was hanging and my truck said it was 29 degrees out yeah. so we went to bed at 3 a.m and woke up at 7 30 got to camp loaded up and here we are we're we're in arizona driving home we got 18 hours and 27 minutes to go. Well, let's give a final recap of the highest of highs and the lowest of lows because it is hunting for you and then maybe like just overall experience. The highest of the highs, you know, seeing all the bulls every single day, almost every single day, uh, seeing the albino elk, that was... I just love seeing new territory too. It just, it's what I live to do, just exploring, seeing new country, and uh, there's no better way to do it than elk hunting. It, it forces you to, to find that kind of stuff, you know. The lows, you know, every day you get back and you haven't killed can be a low. And a lot of times it is, especially if you botched an opportunity. And so that's just, kind of the name of the game you have anticipation at the beginning of the day and then some somewhat of a disappointment towards the end of the day and you repeat that process until you finally achieve success at the end of the yeah man i would say the for me the highest of highs is seeing bulls every day never gets old to me okay. like the footage was amazing I love the country. I love the warm weather. It's snowing back at home right now. And I love the difficulty. Uh, prior to shooting that bull, the closest we got was 72 yards from a six point. And I got knocked up. But upwards of seven days of hard hunting, no downtime, never even getting your bow pulled back is par for the course on this hunt. So... There wasn't really a lot of lows for me. I knew what we were. I knew what we were going into. Yeah. Um, but I, I say like the lowest of lows was probably day five, where our main spot dried up and there was zero elk. And then we made it back to camp in the middle of the day, and I spotted, I don't know, two bulls six miles away with the spotting scope for like a second. 
And then I went and got into the blind earlier than normal, like at 12, and sat that blind from 12 till dark and saw nothing. So that day was like my lowest day where I was like, man, I'm five days in. I agree with that because that day I was out spotting and I didn't see, I didn't see anything in the evening at all. And I spotted, or I was looking over a really big area. And you're kind of forced to reevaluate your program. Like we, we can't keep doing the same thing. My water hole, those elk probably aren't ever coming back. That was a one, that was a, just a, a couple days what they were doing. Yeah, that was part of their round and they moved on. And they moved on, I'm wasting my time in the ground blind. I hate sitting ground blinds anyways. And then our glassing spot is dried up. We put too much scent in the mountain. We gotta go find a new spot. Um, but I'm thankful for day five because that led to day six where we went to the shittiest canyon I've ever been to in my life. And I actually was relieved that when we called that bull in, I. He did see me because I even shooting a bull there would be stupid. I don't know how you would get the meat out. It's not safe to boulder with meat on your back. And I, I just, I don't know, the whole, the whole experience was awesome. I love Arizona. I can't wait to come back and get my teeth kicked in again. It's not for the faint of heart. Again, you got more than 10 points, just save them for an archery rut tag. It'll be, it'll be the greatest elk hunt of your life, guaranteed. It's got to be. And then if you have less than 10 and, you, and you're itching to get here, look at some rifle options for late November. It, you will get, it's a trophy hunt. Um, Arizona is a special place. They manage it well. There's no landowner tags. They reward residents as they should. And non-residents, it is a privilege to be here. And there's no sheds. I found one shed in seven days, and I don't know how many miles we've covered, but one shed. So they must shed hunt here hard. They must. I I was pretty shocked that we only found one, and that was the very end. And it was a chalk white five point, not even that good. So, Guys, we've been recording this whole time while driving on interstate, so sorry for the background noise. You have a lot of options when it comes to podcasts. Thanks for choosing ours. We appreciate you. We know that uh, you guys dig hearing these stories and you, you, you know that we just only share these stories to inspire you, to educate you, and to motivate you to become the best possible version of yourself through hard work and delayed gratification and being accountable to yourself. Separations in the preparation. We'll catch you on the next one. Guys, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Sorry again about the background noise. Uh, usually we have pretty polished uh, audio, but man... When you have the interstate and the tires, it's uh, you're going to get a little background noise. So thanks for your patience on that one. Thank you, Josh Crawford, for filming my carcass and following me around in the mountains and putting up with my grumpy ass while I'm elk hunting hard. Uh, hard work does pay off. Super proud of this bull. He's definitely uh, a last, like a buzzer beater bull. We were going to leave that Friday uh, after the morning hunt. So it was nice to save some money, not have to f- drive him all the way down to Phoenix. He got to save his airline points and we got home in time for Thanksgiving and it was just a win-win and my season is done. I do have a Washington State deer tag archery late season. I might go out a little bit December, but that's probably it. At the time of this recording, it is it should be December still. The December Chub Challenge is going on the Instagram right now. Jump in any week there and get a chance to win stuff for just being fit and doing the assignments. Uh, no strings attached, no entry fee, nothing like that. Just a motivational contest to get you fit during a month that is notoriously 
terrible for your health and fitness. You get stressed out, the holidays, the family, the food, the drinking. We're going to squash that and make December one of the months that you get the best results possible. Speaking of possible, thank you, Buck Knives, Spy Point, Numa Outdoors, Onyx, Matthews, Black Rifle Coffee Company, Kufaru, Crispy, USA, Vortex, Optics, and Wilderness Athlete for making this podcast possible. Thank you for you guys to tuning in and listening. I appreciate your support. Give us one of those iTunes reviews. Takes two seconds. Give us a five-star review if you think we earned five stars. And we celebrate public land, blue-collar elk hunting out west. And we leverage elk hunting to create the best possible version of yourself. Separations in the preparation. We're going to catch you on the next one.